Hi there, this is Structured Rambling, a podcast about literature, ideas in literature, the texts, the themes, the virtues and beyond. My name is Paul, I'm a reader, a writer, a teacher, a fan, and a pig owner. Good day to you people of the podcast, this is Paul Zons to be coming to you, uh, doing some podcasting. Talking about a text today, a little bit of a structured episode, although we're looking at just a particular moment in a text that captures sort of the fullness of said text. John Steinbeck captured the zeitgeist of the Great Depression better than any other American writer, in my opinion. He saw what was happening to the American people across that sparse time, and he wrote about it. Something else he did, though, was outline the plights of the weak and the marginalized in an already difficult time. His greatest work is The Grapes of Wrath, a book a book that, to give a fair treatment, I'll have to do on its own someday. It is the sad odyssey of the Joad family, who leave their home in the Dust Bowl of Oklahoma, seeking a better future in California, and their struggles as they face the reality of what's happening in their country along the way. It's wonderful. It's a heartbreaking novel. Uh, My opinion is it's one of the greatest novels ever written. But today, I want to focus on a portion of Steinbeck's other novel of the Great Depression, Of Mice and Men. Specifically, one chapter where all the marginalized characters in the novel meet just once, just briefly. These four disparate characters represent the margins of Depression-era America, four outcasts who together each take a side of framing the fourth chapter of the novel. Steinbeck has incredible control. Each of these characters could have a novel to him or herself, but only one of these four is a main character in this novel, and two barely have any scenes at all to speak of. They start in suspicious antagonism of each other because the world they live in is so cruel. It's cruel to them specifically, and they can only misunderstand and doubt each other. In the end, they almost come to a sad understanding, but the book moves towards its tragedy, and there's no time in it to spare telling for any more gentle moments. By the end of the novel... Half of the characters in this chapter will be dead. The most important character here is, of course, Lenny, one of the two protagonists of the novel. I'm speaking about this novel assuming you know it or have read it, because I'm just talking about it as an episode. Lenny is massive, almost superhumanly strong, but he's a man-child with a mind that has never fully developed. George... The other protagonist, his friend and caregiver, must translate the complexities of the world so that Lenny can function within it. The world that George is translating, though, is a man's world, a physical laborer's world. There's there's no place for the weak or the complex. Lenny is the greatest tragedy of this book because he's doomed by setting, by time and place and prejudice. In a different place or a different time, 
He would have been tended to and cared for. He would have been given something to do to contribute to his society. Maybe in a home better suited to his needs, he would have been taught over time how to control his strength, how to pet beautiful things without destroying them by accident. Sadly, he's in this world of men and labor, of stoicism and suspicion, where anything but the norm is ridiculed and eventually consumed. Lenny is the greatest tragedy in this book, but he's not exclusive. And sadly, his tragedy brings more down with him. Candy is the old swamper in charge of tending to the bunkhouse. He's missing his hand, and his the work he does is the nearest thing to pity this harsh man-world can show a person. He's symbolized by his old dog, an old, tired mongrel that serves no purpose, and all it does is keep Candy happy and is eventually put down. Candy is beaten down and used up by this world of the working man. He serves them in little useless ways because they can't put him down so easily as his mongrel. When they force him, when they force him to let them kill the dog, he's broken and saddened by it. He latches on to George and Lenny. George has this natural compassion, no matter how he tries to hide it, displayed through his caring of Lenny, and Lenny has a childlike innocence that will accept anyone, especially if George accepts them first. When Candy hears this idea of owning their own farm, where Lenny can tend to the rabbits, he asks to, to join them, offering to bankroll the operation, and unlike his lot on the current farm, he tells them ways he can be useful, even indispensable. Candy gets caught up in George and Lenny's idyllic dream of a place of their own, a place where Lenny can tend those rabbits, but Candy's savings also brings the dream that much nearer. George even knows a place that their combined savings and future earnings could make attainable, and suddenly it's all within, within reach. Curly's wife is out of place in this setting. So out of place that she doesn't even get her own name. Steinbeck places her in an unhappy marriage with a temperamental bully, Curly, who suffers from a severe case of short man syndrome, and she longs for freedom and for fun. She's living a life, but it's a life without meaning. She's unfairly vilified by the men because they only see her as a direct line to Curly's wrath. They push her away and thus further her need for companionship, ironically. This scene in question in Chapter 4 all centers on Crooks, the black stable buck who has a crooked spine from being kicked by a horse as a child. Crooks' race sees him as the most naturally outcast in this setting. And he's built up a healthy resentment for having to live in his own room in the barn rather than the, in the bunkhouse with the other men. Crook's area gets a long description at the beginning of the chapter. All of his possessions are listed, and the cleanliness is remarked upon more than once because Steinbeck, Steinbeck tells us that Crook's was a proud, aloof man. This is a Saturday night. George has gone with the other men, the men who are not outcasts or broken, into town to a brothel. Lenny, 
bored as any child would be, wanders into Crook's room and is berated for it. Crook says on page 68, I ain't wanted in the buckhouse and you ain't wanted in my room. Lenny is too innocent to understand the inherent racism here. Doesn't get why Crooks wants him out because he doesn't understand Crooks' resentment. Crooks tires of being alone all the time. So he's built up his learning and his anger in equal balance. Still not trusting Lenny, Crooks mockingly speculates about how George could end up leaving Lenny behind someday or getting hurt in town. Crooks doesn't understand Lenny's innocence, and when the other man starts to rage at the speculation, Crooks realizes his mistake, saying, Just sit down, and calms the situation. He then starts to be he starts to be normal. He starts to speak normally, amending that all the time alone with only his books has perhaps caused him to speculate on possibilities. Crooks is too intelligent to really believe this, I think, but it does the trick. And the massive man relaxes as Crooks talks about his childhood and again laments how no one ever comes to see him in the barn. And then Candy arrives, looking for Lenny, and Crooks has more trouble being annoyed by this point. Perhaps Crooks feels more akin to Candy because they're both cast-offs, marked by a physical disability, as opposed to Lenny's, which is only apparent once you speak to him. As well, each of Crooks and Candy has a natural shortcoming in the eyes of the other men, Candy's age and Crooks' race, on top of their um, physical limitations. So it is possible that they've had an understanding like this before. Lenny is a big, physically strong laborer. He looks like all the other men, only more impressive still. And it's much easier for Crooks to resent him at first. When the situation between them calms, Crooks is more amiable to being visited. Crooks is more amiable to having them as visitors. He says on page 75, come on in. If everybody's coming in, might as well. It was difficult for Crooks to conceal his pleasure with anger. Candy and Lenny begin to discuss the dream farm with its rabbits once again. Crooks mocks this at first because that's his defense mechanism. However, as the discussion goes on, he too becomes interested. The dream farm becomes this utopia, a place where everyone has their role and everyone is needed and useful. Despite the fact that they're on a farm right now, they truly believe that if they farm their own one under George's leadership, it will somehow be pleasant, fair, equitable. Crooks finally falls under the spell as well and says, If you guys would want a hand to work for nothing, just as keep, why, I'd come and lend a hand. I ain't so crippled I can't work like a son of a bitch if I want to. They all feel this new farm would be different, one worth working for. Sadly, this spell is broken by the arrival of Curly's wife. She arrives under the pretext of finding Curly, but of course she has no interest in finding him, telling them right away that she knows he's gone with the others into town. She just needed out. She's trapped, a prisoner, and before her ultimate tragedy comes to its conclusion, she will reveal to Lenny that she once had a dream too, a life of stardom, a life of fancy and fun. At the very least, a life where she would not be imprisoned like some kind of tropical bird.
Like Crooks, Curly's wife is a double outsider. What she is defines her as much as what she does. Because of Curly's hot temper, the other men avoid her and speak harshly to her, pushing her away so that she can't get them into trouble. All for fear of Curly. Sadly, her ultimate tragedy comes from meeting the one man who will speak with her but cannot treat her gently because he's not capable of it. When she arrives, she says on page 77, They left all the weak ones here. Summarizing the theme of this scene, this entire podcast scene, in fact, and ironically foreshadowing her own death because she, though stronger inside than these three men, will be physically overpowered by Lenny, the one who, on the inside, is the weakest of them all. Though Curly's wife doesn't mean as much harm as she causes, she does it nonetheless. She's a dreamer too, like all three of them. She regrets sacrificing her dream to now be Curly's kept woman, and though her words are harsh, she is only looking for some break from her life. She knows Curly is never there, but she still uses looking for him as her excuse, her escape, her reason to come to the bunkhouse on the barn. She tries to interact with them, but they're harsh with her, abrasive, pushing her away. This group of briefly united outcasts are not willing to accept just one more to their number. She mocks and teases them, the only approach she has, and begins flirting with Lenny, the only one who doesn't know how to take her. She flirts, implying that she knows it was Lenny who hurt Curly's hand, and when Crooks tells her, you got no right coming in, Coming in a colored man's room on page 80, she lashes out, threatening, reminding them she got them all, she could get them all punished just by saying a word. They all lower their eyes and say only yes ma'am until she tires of insulting them and departs. But the damage is done. Insulted and chastised, Crooks suggests that the others leave. And though Candy tries to soften the blow, the dream has burst. Poor, confused Lenny has only the foreshadowing of his next lethal meeting with Curly's wife. Crooks says they forgot his help and they, they can forget about his help and lays down on his bunk as they depart his brief moment of equality forgotten. Steinbeck took the title from a Robbie Burns poem about a plowman who turns up a mouse's nest. The modern de-Gallicified translation of the lines from To a Mouse goes like this. The best laid plans of mice and men often go awry. In this chapter, we see the mice briefly indulge in a nest, yet the plow will inevitably destroy it and them. In this microcosm of symbolic mice in a man's destructive world, there is a hierarchy. Lenny is at its top. Because of his strength, because of George, because of George's protection, and because, to appearances, he's like any other of the men. In fact, he's greater than them at what matters with a man. This also dooms him, though, because he will be punished as a man when the time comes. In another time and another place, Lenny would be cared for, and by someone who would do more than just find him work and tend his moods. George treats Lenny like a dog, tending him, feeding him, disciplining him, and loving him. 
He lets him off the leash once to defend himself against Curly, but George can't train out Lenny's instincts. And then in the end, Lenny has to be put down. In a different world, Lenny would have been cared for, and he would have found many ways to contribute his strength to the, to the society he lives in. But he also would have been protected from his own urges. His weaknesses would be protected and his strengths celebrated. In this world, he is a mouse before the plow. In the same world where Lenny would be cared for and tended to, an old man like Candy would be treated with respect due his years. His missing hand would be no disability because he would not be expected to still work. Having paid his dues, put in his time, he could enjoy his retirement and not wallow in self-pity until he could find another dream to believe in. In this world, Candy is just like his old dog that they kill. He's useless. He's used up. Things that do not help with work do nothing and are cast aside. The dream of the rabbits is his last chance to matter. Despite this, he remains above two in this hierarchy. Curly's wife suffers no disability, physical or mental. On paper, she is more powerful than any of the three weak ones, as she calls them. But this is a farm. This is a man's world, a working world. And worse, she has married a jealous and petty man with power who is as much her jailer as her husband. She must use excuses to come outside. She must be antagonistic to start conversations. She must hide her true thoughts and feelings, and when she can finally let her guard down and speak honestly and safely, she does it with Lenny, and this inability, his inability to control his reactions leads us into tragedy. Despite having the power to have each of these men fired, it's a power she doesn't use because she is a kept woman in this terrible place, and the only power she truly has comes from her death. At the bottom of the hierarchy is Crooks. Crooks is isolated. He's isolated in the physical sense and he's isolated in the novel. He really only has this scene to speak of. This is the scene of dreaming. And in time, he comes around to being interested in what Lenny and Candy have to say. This is a place where the weak ones, as Curly's wife calls them, can be safe, and he can join, and he can be equal, and he can work for his keep. But Curly's wife, who drags Curly with her as a specter wherever she goes, reminds Crooks that there is no place where he is equal. Even a woman in this man's world is above a black man. Steinbeck shows us through these four characters, people out of time, People who would be tended to and cared for and have lives worth living in different circumstances. But in Depression-era California, on a working ranch, these mice will only be turned aside by the plow and destroyed. Two of them are ended by the end of this book. And two of them are no better off than they were at the beginning. This is the tragedy of the outcasts in this man's society, in this working society, in this 
capital D, depressed society. It's a fine rumination on what we define as weakness and how it affects people and how important protecting the weak ones is in a place with more compassion and understanding. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you next time. Thank you.